everyone. This is Dr. Tammy, and welcome to The Trouble with Sex. I have a great guest today, Wendy Stragar. She is the author of Sex That Works, and she's also the founder of Good Clean Love. You might have heard of her products because I talk about them all the time. She started off in her kitchen with a vat on her stove where she created organic intimacy products. And now she's one of the biggest organic lube manufacturers on the market today. But she's also a super smart person when it comes to sustainable relationships. Like I love to talk to her about long-term relationships, about her own marriage. She's been married forever. And she's really articulate when it comes to how to use fantasies in your relationships, which all of you know I'm totally on board with. And I'm really thrilled to have her here today on The Trouble of Sex. We are supported by Dame Products. I want to empower you to find your pleasure with the help of our friends at Dame. Dame is a new kind of pleasure toy company with the mission of making the world a happier place one vagina at a time. Who doesn't love that? All their products are designed by women to bring you quality, versatile, and discreet toys for sex that are going to electrify both your solo and couple play. That's Dame's pleasure promise. I love that. Visit dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex, and you're going to get 15% off all your orders by typing in promo code Dr. Tammy, D-R-T-A-M-M-Y, at checkout. Again, that's dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex, promo code Dr. Tammy. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, Tammy, I'm so excited. You are one of my all-time favorite and immediate go-tos when I have any real questions about sex and sexual response and just trying to understand the landscape of what's happening in the world sexually. And I would have to say I appreciate you calling me out as being the promoter of sustainable sexual relationships over time. You know, my blog has always been called Making Love Sustainable. And I think throughout my whole life, I've been trying to figure out how does love work over time? And like, what is the key that keeps things going? Because as a kid, you know, I grew up in a divorce. You know, my family, I think, was the first to divorce in the whole town. And maybe there's good divorces now, but I never experienced that myself. And so I was really dedicated from a pretty young age of trying to figure out how how to stay. Mm. And then a big part of that seemed pretty clear to me. It was about sexual intimacy over time. Let me ask you a question. You know this podcast is called The Trouble with Sex. What do you think is the biggest trouble with sex right now? And what do you recommend for people? That's a really big question. I think that sex has become transactional in a lot of ways. And I have always written and believed that really amazing sex that lasts over a long period of time is actually held in a container where people really communicate well and they communicate frequently and they know how to show up for each other. And that is communicated in a way that both people feel that somebody's at their back mm. and that they have pretty reasonable thoughts about each other in the relationship. And that the combination of those elements makes you able to build a fire with somebody that can last. And I think that it takes a long time. I mean, the idea that you're just good at sex when you're a teen or even in your 20s 
is this kind of mythology we have that's promoted by a lot of pornography. And truthfully, I think coming to know your own body and your own sexual response takes time. And to share that with somebody else takes even more time. So, I mean, and a lot of statistics bear that out. You know, women have a much harder time orgasming in a partnership than they do by themselves. And still there's a lot of women who don't orgasm at all. And so I think that's a testament to the fact that our sexuality is really sort of the most mysterious place where we become human. Mm. And we're also most driven by what it is that's really primitive in us. And I think that's a scary crossroads for a lot of people. Yeah, so that's interesting because, I mean, you said so many good things that I really like when you said good sex happens in a relationship when you feel someone, you know, has your back. Like, uh, I'm there for you. We have this container, if you will, where things are reasonable and connected. And then there's this other piece that you're talking about where, you know, you have to know your own body and how to give yourself pleasure. And then you have to know how to communicate that to someone else. And that doesn't necessarily happen when you're young. Like that takes a while. No, and it doesn't actually happen that frequently when you're old, as you know, <laughs> because you have this mass, huge case, you know, load that, you know, people are trying to learn about this for a long time. I mean, I think that there is a sexual evolution that actually gets stunted for a lot of people. You know, without going too far off course, the numbers of children who are inappropriately attached or otherwise sexually abused, I mean, those numbers within family systems are sort of extraordinary and we don't look at it and we don't talk about it. And then the numbers of women who in a college experience or in a high school have some kind of erotic injury that really scares them about their own sexuality and then that they don't process I mean, that's coming out in different ways with me too, but I just often think about how those early erotic injuries that are not digested and processed come back to women when they face really difficult transitions in their sexual life. You know, after they get married and have a child is a time when a lot of people stop having sex and, you know, their body sort of experiences a lot of things at that moment, but what's happened to them erotically might have happened a long time before that. So what you're saying is that, you know, your sexual evolution, which is a great saying, is something that develops over time from a young age and that a lot of us, particularly women, have traumas from our young age and throughout our adolescence and young adulthood that has to do with and affects our sexuality that, you know, it sometimes doesn't even come out till our adulthood that we have to really integrate and figure out and heal and talk about and maybe go to therapy about and and process. And that definitely affects who we are as a sexual adult. Yeah. I mean, and don't you think that's some version of what you see all the time? People are trying to figure out what's normal, right? Like when they walk in the door, we always ask, well, am I normal? Is he normal? Is she normal? We're trying to figure out what is this normative space, which is really hard to tell in the landscape we live in because so much pornography is available so readily that a lot of people, I think, confuse that for normative sex because that's fiction. And then there's a big, vast space you know, that I think we don't really have a lot of real conversations 
the way you do, Dr. Tammy, about where are these lines and how do I interpret these feelings I have? I mean, I think that a lot of people are missing a lot of language for their erotic self. Yeah, that that's so true. So what do you suggest for people? Like, how do you, how do you see it? Just to kind of come back to you, I frequently recommend your book about getting the sex you want because I think you give a lot of really good directions about how to cultivate that communication, just like you're doing here with me now, where you listen to me and then you say, well, this is what I think is really interesting in what you said, and you kind of repeat it back to me. And so that's one way I feel like that you've kind of been trained in and I think teach people that they can hear each other, actually hear, this is what I heard you say, And I think when it comes to sexual language, it's not like you can just say to people, oh, just talk about it more. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like a big leap for a lot of people to be able to know how to talk about it. So, you know, I think reading good books, starting small, you know, one tip I always give couples is the idea of a physical conversation because truthfully, the one problem that we know almost all long-term relationships face is the initiation question. Who wants somebody more than the other person? Who asks? Who says no? Right? It becomes this big... I mean, I think it's actually the thing that destroys a lot of relationships, this idea of being wanted and being said no to. And, you know, and I think every relationship has this uneven distribution of desire and match desire. I mean, I know it's something you talk about a lot, right? Yeah, and I'm interested in what you're saying about a physical conversation. So you mean to have a conversation about what's happening physically in the relationship? So it's even more simple than that. It kind of goes back to all that Masters and Johnson stuff. A lot of times when you're fighting about who wants sex and somebody feels really ashamed because they're constantly told, said no to. I mean, I want you to know that in my marriage, I've been on both sides of that fence. And they always say that the person who says no is most powerful But what I would say is that both people are powerless. It doesn't feel that great when you're the one saying no. And it doesn't feel that great when you're being told no. So I've had both those sides in my marriage. And it almost destroyed my marriage, truthfully. And I had to take a really big, bold step, as did my husband, to actually decide to do something else together. And actually, this is why I believe in forgiveness as a grace that comes on you, because I couldn't have done that myself. But, you know, he came to me at one point, like 17 years in our marriage, you know, and sort of wanted, he was interested in me again after many, many years. I had to risk being with him then after being so rejected. And I couldn't take that risk and actively engage with him if I couldn't forgive him. And so... The interesting thing about a situation like that is that it's almost like you can't remember how it was before. It's like when you really forgive somebody or forgiveness comes into something, then it's like you're starting fresh. There's this new space. But anyway, getting back to this idea of physical conversation, I often tell couples to stop talking about it. Stop trying to find words because they just keep using the same words the same argument words. And they they can be really loaded, those words. Exactly. And so I say, have a physical conversation where you each take turns. It's not necessarily going to a place where you're going to have intercourse. In fact, maybe take that off the table. 
right? And it's just like, have somebody touch you for 10 minutes and use the cues, harder, softer, warm, cold, right? You use these cues that everybody understands what they mean, more pressure, less pressure, just so you can feel each other again. You can feel yourself being felt by somebody and you can say, I want you to touch me more softly or touch me on the back of my neck or, you know, the cues are strictly visceral physical communications. And sometimes then people can remember what it feels like to be felt. Oh, this person's actually feeling me. It's not like words. So sometimes that's a good place to start when when couples are so estranged from each other and so hurt that, okay, just stop talking about it now. You know, I always have said, some people agree and some people don't, but I always was able to have the best conversations with my husband after we had sex Mm. because he was really listening, right? (laughs) He's listening in all that time that we were really intimate and kind of moving into this other sort of altered reality together. And then at the end of that time, I could ask a real question and he could give me a real answer. So that helped us for a lot of years when we were, you know, we couldn't see eye to eye. Yeah, so a lot of people have that experience of, of not necessarily needing to be emotionally connected in order to have sex, but feeling more emotionally connected after having sex. Yeah, I think that's pretty universal, right? Yeah, but it's hard sometimes to climb over that big pile of resentment in the middle of the bed in order to get to that place where they feel like having sex. So what you're saying is, well, you don't have to have sex, but maybe start touching each other. Yeah, because, I mean, if you can't get past that test where you both allow the other person to, like, actually touch you, I think the sex conversation shouldn't even be on the table at that point. And probably the problem is not about sex. I think we blame sex for a lot of other problems Mm. that we're not really willing to be honest about. Oh, well, say more about that. What do you mean? So, you know, this seems so basic, except I kind of feel like in the world today, it's less understood than it's ever been. Just basic kindness. I don't mean just communicating. And certainly we know that what we disclose is what somebody is allowed to know about us. So if we really don't disclose very much about ourselves, then there's not a lot of material to work with. But even more than that, just in regular transactional exchanges, you know, I grew up in a house where people would yell, get me the goddamn toilet paper. There's no kindness There's no warmth, right? Or like where people use sarcasm and sarcastic jokes as sort of the content of the transactions. And then, you know, it's always at somebody's expense. And so I think, you know, when you look at communicating and you sort of dive underneath just, you know, are you saying I'll be home at five or goodbye when you leave in the morning? Just like the ways in which you communicate, the tone you use, you know, that that you don't tell jokes that hurt other people. All of those things are sacrificing the trust that was built when you fall in love with somebody. So any relationship that lasts for any period of time had that high kind of, oh, we're so in love, right? All these hormones working on your behalf, cascading through you. So you're not ever even hungry. You're just gazing. And, you know, everybody gets that for 10 minutes or six months, (laughs) if you're lucky. But you, you bank a lot of kindness and connection during that time that I think is available for people when it gets hard. I feel like we sacrifice that trust and that connection in the ways we sometimes 
grow in our relationships and take people for granted and, and don't communicate with warmth. Don't really listen. It's hard for somebody to get really sexy and vulnerable when they feel invisible to you, when they feel like you don't speak to them with a kind voice, when they feel like you're not going to change your plans when they need something. It's really hard to open up. And I think sex, really good sex, is really about surrendering. We're not controlling that activity. We're giving into something and giving up our control. And that just by itself is scary. But to do that in a context where you don't really know somebody or trust somebody, I mean, I think that explains the statistics of so few orgasms in hookups. So what do you attribute the new statistics that say that people are having less sex than ever across all decades of life? Like, why do you think that's happening? I don't think it's true for just now, but I think that there were periods of time when people had sex where they felt like they were obliged because they married somebody. And even if they weren't having good sex, they they still agreed to have that sex. And Mm -hmm. I think that doesn't happen as much. And Mm -hmm. I'm not qualifying that as good or bad, but I think within long-term relationships, you know, they're more sexless than they were historically, because people feel like they don't have to hold up that agreement if they don't want to. I think that people who are single, you know, it seems like it's also great out there, but there's a lot of books that have been written recently about women who sort of took all the liberties and felt like they could have as many hookups as they wanted. And at the end of the day, it really wasn't satisfying for them. I think that this exposure of all this injury that has gone on for centuries, it's not new to our culture, but we're actually kind of holding the burden of the way that's happened over millennia. And I think that that conversation needs to be expanded with more love. And I just think it's another place where we don't have language to talk about how we feel and to ask for what we need. God, I wish we had hours and hours to talk about that conversation. But let's take a break. We'll be right back. Sexual wellness and exploration are key to staying healthy, experiencing pleasure, and building strong relationships. For thoughtful and timely articles, tips, and insights, I highly recommend signing up for the Swell blog. Dame believes knowledge and pleasure combined create power, and so do I. Swell is a go-to resource for the latest in adult sex ed. Sign up now at swell.damewellness.co. That's swell, S-W-E-L-L, dot dame, D-A-M-E, wellness, dot C-O. Wendy, I want to ask you about fantasy. How can couples today use fantasy to create more sex in their life that doesn't expire, sustainable relationships, long-term connected partnerships. What do you recommend for people when they're using fantasy to spice things up? What do you have to say about that? Well, so that was the seventh chapter in my book that we had to write like seven times. (laughs) Why? I think it's a really important conversation. And I think it's one that most people want to know about, but are often afraid to approach. So what I would say first is that when we were talking about the evolution of people sexually, you know, one of the things that I learned when I started to really think about and understand fantasy was that fantasies arise from our subconscious the way that dreams do when we're pubescent. 
when we're just first becoming sexual beings in our early teens, right? So it's interesting because this is how I learned it. And Tammy, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but that the subconscious takes the material from, you know, our unconscious that makes us unhappy, painful memories, and tries to turn them into something pleasurable. So people, you know, who might have submission fantasies that just come up, you know, maybe we're really dominated. I mean, it's hard to know how this happens because it doesn't happen the same way for everybody. But what I want to say is that I think that there's an imprint of sort of fantastical material that your subconscious cultivates in your early teens. And that for me in my life, it took me a long time to be able to look at that content that was just inside of me. So I know that fantasy ranges from, you know, just being able to look at your own thoughts to really enacting scenarios and scenes with somebody all the way to going to dungeons and, and doing things that, you know, you would, you, you know, you might never say, Oh, I'm into this. So I think that, that fantasy lives on the same spectrum as how inhibited and disinhibited we are sexually. And it's a very broad sweeping thing. But in my book, what I talk about a lot is just the ability to turn inward and listen to your own fantasy life. So how do you use that in a relationship? How do you use that with your partner? You can use it for your own, you know, self-stimulation. I think that when you know what it is that really turns you on, let's just say that it's submission fantasies and there's a lot of really interesting erotic porn that's written. I don't really watch videos, but I have read a lot of anthologies about submission and domination, meeting strangers, whatever. Literally, I could just read one and realize how turned on I get by those ideas. Now, that doesn't mean that I would put myself in that situation. But when I'm in a sexual encounter with my husband, those things will come up themselves. And so for a long time, I would just try to shut them off. At first, I used to be really afraid of it. And I mean, I would have these thoughts and I'd be like, well, shit, was I raped or how, you know, where did this come from? You know, did this happen to me as a child? I didn't even know where I, these thoughts came from, but they were really eroticized and were really like rocket fuel for me when I started looking at them and then also shameful. Right? Like, so mm -hmm. I would have this amazing sexual response when I would let myself go down this path. And sometimes they were like, you know, historical, right? You know, all kinds of, I was a slave and he was a king and I don't know where it came from. It wasn't mm -hmm. like I was making myself think it up, mm -hmm. but I wasn't making myself not look. Mm -hmm. It was just there. And so for a long time, it made me really scared and uncomfortable and like, shit, am I normal? And I think that that happens to people where there's this rocket fuel of intensity that lives in us as sexual erotic beings. And when you get access to that, it really, it makes a sexual encounter not routine. I mean, it makes it so that you're not just looking at leftover sex you know, I won't do this, I won't do this, I won't do this. And the only things you'll do are what's left over. Mm, that's a great thing to say. Leftover sex. I love that. But if you're having fantasies that, like, I don't tell my husband my fantasies, but he is definitely engaged in the energy that comes out of me while I'm letting them play. So it's interesting because a few times 
I've tried to tell him. I've tried to say, well, you know, and we've had a few conversations. So there's a lot of things in your book I still can't do. So after 38 years of having sex with the same person, there's still things you can't share. It's weird. Like, I wouldn't tell him about the nature of my fantasies because, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not shameful because it's just this fantasy in my head. Well, it's personal. Sometimes your fantasies are personal. Completely outside of PC, right? It's not fantasy by its very nature is not politically correct. A book that I read by this guy, which is something I really recommend to your listeners, Stanley Siegel, Your Brain on Sex. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about this fantasy stuff. And I, I happened to be interviewing him years ago when I realized it was okay for me to have that. And that was just a natural thing. But I feel like a lot of people are afraid of that. So, Wendy, we have a question from a listener, and this is from Larry, and Larry says, I've been married for 25 years. I want to shake things up with my wife. Do you have any suggestions? I hope that Larry is really kind to his wife and shows up for her. We don't know too much about Larry, right, or his wife. It might seem silly, but, you know, for us, we used to always have sex late at night because, you know, we had all these kids, and then... You know, one of the big, bold things we did was get rid of all the kids, and then we had sex in the afternoon. <laughs> and you know, it was kind of like afternoon delight. I don't know if you remember that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was just such an astonishing thing. You know, eyes open, daylight, sex with my husband in my own bedroom was like, wow, haven't done this in a really long time. So that's just a small thing, but it was enough to make us think about being together in a new way. Mm-hmm. I think that the key is to get over this leftover sex idea. I think it's really easy for people to not know what really turns them on. And then sometimes they have an amazing experience and they have this amazing orgasm and then they try to recreate that exactly the way it happened. Right, exactly. That happened to me for years. We would sometimes have these great orgasms, sometimes together, sometimes separately. We just as many times we would miss. He would come too soon. I'd be so pissed. Like I would want to kill him. We had those misses, you know, it took time for us to be able to read each other's cues. But I remember in those years when, when I would like try to repeat exactly what happened last time. I wasn't in the moment. Anything that takes you out of your body And the fact that you're not running the show is going to stop you. And the other thing that's going to stop you, and maybe Larry's wife, is if she's having thoughts about her body image or, you know, anxious about the payment for the mortgage or coronavirus at the school in the next two towns. Like as soon as anxiety is in your brain, you're not going to find an orgasm. So, Wendy, in the last minute that we have, what advice do you want to give our listeners? It could be anything. The primary sensory organ that wakes up the arousal mechanism is the nose. Mm. There's all kinds of science about that, about how we need that as a protective mechanism to find the right partner that actually really resonates with us. But I make love oils and I basically really never have sex without them. And good lubricant goes a long way in helping you awaken your own arousal mechanism and also have longer, better sex. 
But scent, I think, is such a primary sense that we often ignore. So true. And that's where we pull the curtain back on that arousal mechanism and our fantasy life and all that stuff is happens through our olfactory bulb, which is co-located with our limbic brain. And that's where sex turns on. Wendy, you're always at the cutting edge. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. I love hearing from you. And hopefully we'll do this again soon. Thank you for caring about the things that are important to me. This episode was brought to you by Dame Products. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. The Trouble With Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab New York City. Our L.A. studio engineer is Aaron Steinberg. This episode was mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Hirschfield.